Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the gospel of Luke chapter 13. Uh, This is also our lectionary reading uh, where churches all around the globe, uh, as we prepare for Easter, uh, will be sharing this gospel lesson together. So let's share in God's good word together. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. What would you do if you had one year to live? You get one more chance. You get a second chance. 365 days, 52 weeks. It's a pretty short time to make up for a lifetime of wrongs done or opportunities missed. So so think about that in your life. What's first? What would you do first? Well, of course, if you have children, you've got to take care of the kids. What do you you have to do for the kids? For those we love, how do we want to spend that time? Uh, To make our own soul ready to see God. How do you get ready in that one year? Jesus says about this fig tree, no, 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 we're not going to cut it down. I'm the Lord of the second chance, that's true, uh, but he's got a year, just one year. And then we're going to check and we're going to see how things are going. You see, this is a story that's a warning as well as a challenge to live each day as a gift, a gift that we've been given. It's not to be wasted, it's to make a difference in our life and the life of others. So Jesus invites us to live now in such a way as to have no fear of that day that we will give an account um, for how we use the gift that God has given us. So tonight's your gift. This next year is your gift. So love does, gives a last chance. So let's make the most of it. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. And we're going to visit about this scripture. We're going to look more in depth. And actually, the scripture that we read tonight uh, is in the middle of three stories that Jesus tells back to back to back. And so this, this life that, that Jesus is asking us to live, live fully, live into, uh, is something that um, can be sort of nebulous, sort of uh, fuzzy in our minds. What is this life? Because for Jesus, life is not simply about your, your physical body. It, it's much greater than that. that. When the Hebrews talked about life, they meant your whole life. And so Dallas Willard really helped me with this uh, back in 2009. I want to show you uh, what your life looks like in case you've forgotten. Your life, or your soul, if you will, Uh, is made up of all these pieces. So so all this is connected. You have your soul, and that includes your social network, the people that are here tonight, your family, your friends, your loved ones, your social network. That's a part of who you are. Uh, And and make no mistake about it, people with a strong social network uh, are stronger, live longer, healthier, happier than those who don't. It also has to do with your body. And and all of us who've been battling cold or flu over the last number of weeks know uh, that your life is much better when your body's working right. Uh, You just feel better. Anybody that's ever been in chronic pain know how devastating that can be. And all of these are malleable. They they go in and out of one another. They're not simply standalone or compartmentalized. Your life includes, your soul includes your social life, your body, your mind, your, your thoughts and your feelings. And of course, in the very center of who you are is your heart or your will uh, or what one good friend of mine called your picker, your chooser. You, you choose, and, and that's different than your mind. You're like, you can think about something, about what you will choose, but your will, your picker, your heart, your spirit chooses, and that is so important because all of these influence one another. So at the end of your life, 
But let's say that we were to have 365 days from today, and that would be the end of us. The question is, will you choose God? And, and do you have any track record of choosing him up to that point? Because the likelihood of you choosing God at the moment of death is pretty low unless you've chosen him, chosen him previously. Right? There's nothing that says you would just automatically flip and, oh, well, I've never talked to Jesus or never had a conversation with him you know, in the 48 years of my life, but now that I'm dead, I better figure out how to do that. That's not a very good plan, is it? No, you, you want your whole life to be moving, moving towards God, and that's what God is asking us in Jesus, to turn our life towards him. Now, all of it, our friends, our family, our bodies, our minds, and our choices, all of this, we come through the, the word of God and the spirit into our life, that arrow, and then it goes back out to Christ and to the world. And, and this is how we live our lives. This is what God is asking of us, all of it. Our soul, our mind, our body, our social relationships, our families, all of ourselves is what God's asking for. And so in the scripture, Jesus says this here in this text and also all throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, repent, which is to turn your life towards God. Okay? Will you say that word with me? Repent. That's what God is asking, that we would turn our lives towards him. Now, this is where we get really goofed up because a lot of people think, well, I've repented and I've turned my life towards God and because I've, I've felt something at church. I went to church and I felt something or I was at camp and I felt something or I looked at the sunset and I felt something so I must be connected to God. No, repentance is not a feeling, okay? Say that with me. Repentance is not a feeling, okay? It's not a feeling. And, and other people say, well, um, I thought about God and so I must be you know, in God's will, I must be doing what God wants me to do. No, repentance is not a thought. Say that with me. Repentance is not a thought. It's not a thought. It's not a prayer. It's not a feeling. What is repentance? Repentance is an action. Say that with me. Repentance is an action. It's to turn your life towards God, to turn away from things that you know hurt you, hurt others, and towards God, things that bring life to you, bring life to others. This is what living a life of repentance is. All of it, your social, your body, your mind, your picker, all of it towards God, towards life, towards love, towards forgiveness. It's a lifestyle, a way of life. This is what God is asking of us tonight. And, and if you haven't ever said yes to that, I hope that you will. I hope you'll do it right tonight and that your life will begin to change and to move towards God because Jesus gives us a warning that you never know what life will bring or how long it will last. Abraham Lincoln put it like this. It's in your sermon notes if you follow along. He said, I want it said of me that I plucked a weed and planted a flower wherever I thought a flower would grow. What Abraham Lincoln's pointing to is this sense within himself, and I think for all people, that we are really here to make a difference in the world. We are to leave the world a better place than when we entered it. Uh, by, by however we can, by a song or a thought or a smile or a hug or, or a job well done, uh, helping another person out. Uh, wouldn't it be great if, if it could be said of all of us that uh, we were people who plucked weeds and planted flowers uh, wherever we thought they might grow? And so in this text that we look at tonight uh, as, as a setup, just so that you don't miss it, I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, and then I'll tell you what I told you. Uh, it looks like this. Jesus makes these three points. First of all, that life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. Uh, the world around us uh, is fragile, and you don't know how it's going to go. You just don't. We, we plan, uh, and God laughs, and stuff happens. And, and, and we largely live a life uh, of response to whatever's going on in our life. Life is uncertain. And then secondly, uh, Jesus warns us that death is unpredictable. It's capricious. 
actually. You just don't know. Uh, And we're going to see some examples of that that Jesus tells us about uh, in this text. And then finally, uh, certainly the first two are true, uh, but it leads to the third, which is judgment is inevitable. Ultimately, each person, every mortal on the planet, will stand before Jesus, will stand before God, and, and and God will look at our life, and we will have a relationship with him or not. And so what Jesus says is start that relationship now, right now. Because time is short, and you don't know how short. Um, Only God knows that. Even Jesus doesn't know that. He says, I don't know the time or the hour when your life will end. Only God the Father knows that. Not even Jesus knows that. And so um, I want you to to go back with me now. If you have your Bibles, it'll make it really easy to sort of look how it's all together. Uh, I would remind you that the Bible didn't have chapter or verse distinctions until about the 1400s when they started printing it, right? When it was written down, uh, you didn't need chapters or verses. Uh, It didn't come from God that way, Uh, but the printers had to figure out what page they were on. Okay, so sometimes it's hard when you read the Bible because when you start a new chapter, you think that that's a new story. It's not. Rarely is it, actually. Um, So uh, this story actually begins back in chapter 12, verses 58 and 59. And so Jesus starts these stories this way. He says thus, so when you go with your accuser before a magistrate, a judge, on the way, make an effort to do what? Settle the case, right? You make an effort to settle the case. And, and, and this only makes sense, right? If you've ever been in a lawsuit, you want to settle out of court if you can. Uh, you want to get it done. You don't want to have to pay the court costs. You don't want to have to go through that mess. You want to, to be right with people if you can. So you make an effort to settle the case, Jesus says. Or bad stuff happens. You could be dragged before the judge, which is bad. Uh, the judge will hand you over to the officer. That's worse. Or the officer will throw you into prison. Because all that's possible if you don't make an effort to settle the case. And Jesus says, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. So Jesus is uh, admonishing us, begging us, encouraging us. Say, hey, if you've got a problem with somebody, work it out. And work it out while it's a small thing before it's a big thing. Right? So if you miss your wife's birthday, fix it now. Right? Don't wait three months later and go, well, I'll make it up to her anniversary. No. Right? You make it up as soon as you can. You don't just hope that it gets better because uh, otherwise you'll be sleeping on the couch and then, you know, the front yard and, and the rest. See, G- this is how Jesus is teaching. If you have a problem with somebody, work it out quickly before it gets worse. So Jesus is basically saying this. Make an effort to settle the case or else, because bad stuff happens with things that are left undone. So this is a wisdom. It's also a warning. Uh, Jesus says that everything, p- things happen, bad stuff happens, don't allow it to get worse. And, and so this takes effort. Now, again, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard this, that God's grace, God's salvation uh, is, is unmerited favor. There's nothing that you can earn. That's true. You can't earn it, but it does take effort. It takes a great deal of effort to live for Christ in this world. It takes your energy. It takes your time. It takes your resources. Uh, it takes your heart. It takes your whole life. It takes a lot of effort. And so Bob Goff in his book, he, he has this quote, and I think he's exactly right. He says, God wants us to get some skin in the game and to help make a tangible difference. Will you read that with me? God wants us to get some skin in the game and to help make a tangible difference in the world. That's who we are to be uh, as followers of Jesus. So Jesus tells the first story about the person uh, who needs to settle their account, and then he tells a second story uh, that, that's really quite odd. Uh, It takes a little bit of explanation. So let me see if I can help us. We've gone from chapter 12, the very end of chapter 12, to the first part of chapter 13. It says this. At that time, that very time, there were some present who told him, meaning Jesus, about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, what had happened was some Jews had gone to the temple 
Um, and Pilate, as the Roman governor of the area, took them, arrested them, killed them, and then mingled their blood with the sacrifice that was going into the temple. Okay, it was a horrible thing. It was an, an atrocity. Uh, it was a violent political act by the occupying force. Now, in, in Jesus' day, when something really bad happened, it's still, that, this idea still hangs around, by the way, people thought to themselves, wow, that's really bad. They must have done something bad. God must be really mad at them. And so they asked Jesus this question, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? They, I mean, this was a real question. This is sort of question that we ask, you know, when the, when the tornadoes go through the south this week, uh, if, if one of the tornadoes hits a church, you know, you'll hear people say stuff like this. Well, you know, I heard they, they had some problems in that church. God was getting them. You know, he wiped them out because, you know, they didn't do communion right or they baptized cats or whatever. You know, just, just weird stuff. You've got to make something up to, to make yourself feel better about God must have done them that way, which means he probably won't do me this way, right? It's a, it's a self-protection sort of thing. You have to make up this idea of why something bad happens to, to something that you can't figure out. And so they're asking Jesus this thing like, wow, Pilate kills them, takes their blood, mingles it with a sacrifice. They must have done something really horrible for God to allow that to happen. Jesus says, no, that, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, uh, there's another uh, story that's in John 9 uh, where Jesus makes this really clear. So the disciples come to Jesus in John 9, and they say, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because again, if you're blind, you must have done something wrong, or his parents must have done something wrong. And Jesus says, no, 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 neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. Now, again, uh, here we're not saying that God did that to him or so that people would like Jesus better. No, Jesus is saying it simply is the case. Sometimes really bad things happen. No one knows why. Um, it just is. It just is. And so Jesus tells this story. And then he goes on and he tells uh, a next story uh, in Luke 13, uh, 3 to 5. He, he says this, no, I, I tell you, it wasn't because of their sin, but, now he gives them the warning, unless you repent, and what does repent mean? Turn your life towards God, right? It's not a feeling, it's not a thought, it's an action. So unless you turn your life towards God, you will all what? Perish, as they did, right? Uh, you'll, you'll die just like they did. And, and so he uses this as a warning. And then he tells another story. He says, or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now, he goes, no, no, no. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. He uses the same language twice. And he says, look, it doesn't do you any good to judge other people in their hardships. It doesn't help you, doesn't help them. Um, and, and today, uh, you can go uh, to Siloam. Uh, it's the southern part of Jerusalem. Uh, and people wanted to know, well, why did they die? Chantel and I were here back in April. Um, you can see th this is about 10, 15 stories tall. Huge walls uh, from the time of Jesus. And if you're down in that pool and one of those walls falls on you, are you going to die? Yes, you are going to die. That's what it looks like. And so Jesus says, there were 18 people in a pool, look like that. The wall falls on them. And they died. Yes, the people who were taking the temple offering, uh, they were killed. They died. Is one worse than another? No. And then he, and he uses the two examples. He says the first one was a political uh, murder, atrocity, right? And this was just bad luck, right? They were in the pool. The wall falls down. That's it. There's 18 of them dead. And, and, and people were trying to decide which, which is worse. What did they do? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. He says, but... 
But pay attention. You never, because it works like that, you don't know when you're going next. So turn your life towards God now. It's important that you do it now. Don't wait. Don't, don't try to put it off to another day. Live for me now. And then he tells the story that we came to uh, in our reading tonight in, in Luke 13, 6 and 7. He basically says this, that they come to this tree, right? He talks about a fig tree planted in the vineyard. And he comes looking for fruit on it, and he, and he doesn't find any. So he says to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree. How many years? Three years. Okay, now those of you who garden, you know this. Uh, you plant a tree, and the first year it sleeps. Uh, the second year it creeps, and the third year it leaps, right? That, that's what happens with plants. And so by the third year, this thing should be full of figs. But there wasn't any. So, he says, still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? That's how the story goes. And, and so that's what you would expect. Everybody who heard, the, heard this story thought, well, yeah, you're just going to cut it down. There's no way that you would leave that there. Now, the reason for that is that if you go back in Luke to chapter 3, you're going to find John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Uh, and everybody would know these words from John. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is what? Cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Now, now this, everybody who followed John knew this. And a lot of Jesus' followers were John's followers before they started to follow Jesus. And so when they came to this story, they thought, well, of course you're going to cut it down. You, you know, the land is valuable and you know, it's, it's, it's very precious. And so I want to show you the photos of, of what uh, the, the soil is like around Israel. Now, you can imagine, uh, again, we took this back in April, uh, how easy is it to plant a tree there? It's not. It's very, very difficult. And so if you were to have a close-up of what the ground looks like in Israel, it looks like that. Uh, we don't know whose legs those are. We just got a stock photo. Uh, but that's, you know, that's right there uh, in Israel. You can see that if you were going to plant a tree, that's going to be very difficult. And the fig trees can get really, really large. They're huge. Uh, that's, a, that's a fig tree. And so you would never waste that sort of soil, that sort of land, where you had removed the rock, you had dug it out by hand, you had brought in good soil, you had fertilized the soil, and then you had a tree, and it didn't produce anything. You would never do that. You would never, of course you would cut it down. Now this is really good to preach. Because this is the fun part. Because we all have people that, like that in our life. We've all been in that spot in our life where somebody thought that we should have arrived by now. Uh, friends, I have uh, a doctorate in uh, ministry. I got it last June. Um, that program's supposed to take you somewhere from three to like five years at most. Uh, I think mine took me nine, right? I should have never gotten it. Uh, but they kept sending me letters like, hey, Mark, we're going to give you a, a second chance. We're going to give you a little more time. We know that you're really bu busy building that building and building this building and, and doing these things. We're going we're gonna to give you a little more time. But then I also got a note that says, but no more time, right? And so this time last year, I was on deadline. By March 1st, I had to have everything in, no more messing around. And so I did, and now I'm Dr. Foster. But, but friends, I, I tell you that was about the grace of the institution, not because of me, right? Because I, I, I took lots of time uh, that could have messed that up, and we have all been there. But here's the great thing about God. We have a God of second chances. We have a God that looks at us and says, you know, they probably should have kicked you out of school by now, but... They didn't, and so we're going to give you a second chance. You know, you really should be further along in your career by now, but we're going to give you a second chance. You know, maybe we've all been there. And we have a God that gives us a second chance 
and a second chance and a second chance. And that's good news, friends. It's really good news. The land was precious. And everybody around would basically say this, don't waste it on a taker. You see, because one of the things, the way God made the world is that we are to be co-creators with Christ. We're not to be takers. We're not to be trees that suck up the sustenance out of soil and we, we take all the life out of the lives around us and the people around us and we don't produce anything. That, that doesn't work long term. And, and that can happen for a little while and Jesus will give you a second chance. But you don't get to live like that forever. At some point, you have to produce something from what you're taking from the world. And that's the other part of the story. And so the tree took sustenance from the soil and produced nothing for three years. Not the first year, not the second year, not the third year. And everybody but Jesus looked at the tree and said, cut it down. We've had enough. That's it. Cut it down. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. I got a pile of poop back here. That might help. So he got the manure and he puts it around it. And he says, we're going to give it one more year. One year. One year to live, friends. We're going to see what happens. And of course, the great thing about the story is it never tells you what happens the next year. He just leaves it open. Because we're an open story, aren't we? We're still in the making. So look what Jesus does. This good gardener giving it a second chance. He replies, sir, let alone for one more year until I dig around it, put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You can cut it down, he says. So here are the lessons, friends. Lesson one. We will be judged according to the opportunities we've been given. And so those of us who given a lot of opportunities, lots of expected of us. It's not true for other folks that, you know, don't have the resources we have, don't have the education we have, don't have the knowledge we have, don't have the abilities we have, don't have the communities and families that we have. Those of us who have all these things, we have a lot around here, a lot's expected of us in ways that's not true for other folks in the world. Secondly, we are here to co-create with God and not just take. We're not just to be takers. We're to be co-creators with God. Thirdly, there's a lot of lessons in this tiny little story that Jesus is the God of the second chance and he's better than the law because the law would simply say, no, you've given it three years, cut it down. That's what John said. That's what the law would say. Just, you know, be done with it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm still going to do something with this tree. He's going to do something with you too if you'll let him. So he's, he's asking you tonight to let him. Fourth, Jesus is also the God of the final chance. And this is where it's really hard because people want to talk to me all the time. They're like, okay, hold on. Now, when, when exactly can I give my life to Jesus and sneak into heaven? I mean, that's really what people want to know. What's the lowest common denominator? How long can I live for myself and then right before I die, flip the switch and sneak into heaven? I mean, that's really what a lot of people want to know. And friends, that's no life at all. Because what Jesus asked you is the same thing he asked Peter is, do you love me? And that's a different question. Do you love me? Not what you can get by with. You see the difference? Any of you all have children, you understand this. If you have a child and you say, you know, do you love me? And they say, what can I get by with? You're like, really? Really? I mean, we, we loved you. We gave birth to you. We feed you. We clothe you. Let, let's change the conversation. That's not about what we can get by with. It's... Do you love me? So Jesus is also the God of the final chance. And he says, look, friends, I am a God of second chances. But ultimately, those chances will be done. And we're going to have to talk this through. And we're going to answer the question, do you love me? And is there anything in your life that would say that's the case? Because talk's cheap. So finally, 
from the first story in chapter 12 to the second story at the first part of 13 to the third story in the second part of 13. Jesus is saying this. He gives us three warnings right in a row. And we know that in the Bible, uh, seriously, in the Bible, if something is said just one time somewhere, you don't have to pay a lot of attention to it. Now, I know for some of you feel like that's blasphemy. We can talk about it later. But when Jesus gets really serious about the core stuff you need to know, he says it three times. He says it three times in a row. And, and so that's why he gives you these three stories, boom, 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 so that you won't miss it. And so this is what he says. He says, use your time that remains. Or A, you're going to be thrown into prison like the first story. You know, like the guy who has this debt and he asks him to work it out. And if you choose not to, that's going to be a problem for you. He says, or you might be like the people in the second story where, you know, you go to the temple, you're going to church and you think everything's great and Pilate kills you. Or you go to the, you know, you go to the bathhouse down to the pool of Siloam and the walls fall on you. He said, that could be you. Or, uh, you know, you, you haven't produced any fruit, and all of a sudden you get cut down. He said, I'm, I'm warning you, in all these different stories, don't let that happen to you. Turn your life towards God tonight, right now. Don't wait another moment. Because it's good for you, it's good for the world, it's good for the kingdom. It's good for everlasting life. Follow today. Do you love me? He's asking. Bob writes in his book, uh, it's chapter 23, he says, Ever since high school, I wanted to go on a really, really long sailing trip. In fact, a buddy and I decided one day that we'd sail across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. Now, that's no small thing. Since 1906, every other year, there's been a race, and it's called um, the Transpac Race. It's from Los Angeles to Hawaii. And for safety reasons, normally, they require the boats to be 45 feet or longer with a full crew. But on this particular year, they changed the rules to allow smaller boats to go. And so Bob signed up with his buddies on a 35-foot boat, on a sailboat. Now, 35 feet doesn't sound all that small at first until you figure out that it's about twice the length of a Toyota Camry. All right, that's not a big boat. And so he's sailing, you understand this, from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The plan was simple. Uh, we'd sail 2,600 miles across the ocean at seven miles an hour uh, while God threw garbage cans of ice-cold water uh, in the windows every couple of minutes. And all this, uh, they'd eat some chili and tell manly stories about ourselves. That, that was the plan. There were supposed to be six guys on the trip, but none of them knew how to navigate, and they didn't want to miss Honolulu, so they asked a friend who was a navigator for a U.S. Navy destroyer to come with us. He said yes. They were like, awesome. We have our ringer. This is going to be great. So navigating the race was no small task. You can just imagine. Uh, there's no GPS to figure out where you are. Instead, the requirement was that each boat steer by the stars uh, and the sun. Unfortunately, just a few days before the race, the Navy changed our navigator's orders. He couldn't come. So the navigation technique that, that helped him uh, is known as dead reckoning. And the idea is a simple one. So it's, it's, it's right in his wheelhouse, he says. It involves your compass. You take a bearing off of a couple of fixed points, uh, and then you draw a line straight from there to you, uh, and then from there to you, and the next point from there to you. And, and he says this works great uh, on the boat and in life. He says, when I don't know the answer to where I am or what God wants me to be doing, which is often, I try to get a bearing on at least a couple of fixed points that I can trust. He says, one of them for him is Jesus. He says, I know it sounds like a canned Sunday school answer. I tend not to like those, but it's true. I take a bearing off what I know about Jesus. I look at what he had to say about where I am, and then I draw a line from me to Jesus. And the other fixed point I use, he writes, is a group of people. I feel God has dropped into my life, kind of like a cabinet. These people have their particular areas of wisdom and experience, and I use them to bounce ideas off of and get their input. And in turn, I'm on their cabinets of my friends too. He says, for instance, I'm on my daughter's 
uh, Lindsay's cabinet. I've appointed myself to be in charge of homeland security for her. All right? This is the people on my cabinet help me do some dead reckoning in my life uh, to where I take a bearing from their counsel and another fixed point in my life and I draw a line from them to me and from me to Jesus. And where all those lines intersect is probably where God wants me to be. And, and it works for me. He says, what I realized is that all I really need to know when it came down to it was the direction I was pointing and that I was somewhere inside the large circle of God's love and forgiveness because we do have a God of second chances. He says, I've made refinements and countless mid-course corrections, of course, in my life, and there have been more than a couple of times when I've navigated potentially disastrous issues and needed more exact specifications. And when I did, you know what? I had the resources I needed to figure it out. I did. And then he writes the close. He says, there's a tradition in the race, no matter when you finish, even if it's two in the morning, when you pull into Ala Moana Marina in Oahu, there's a guy who announces the name of the boat and every crew member who made the trip. And there's a huge loudspeaker and his booming voice bursts through the trade winds and welcomes each person home. It's the same guy. And he's been announcing each boat's arrival at the end of every Transpac race for decades. He says, I'll, I'll spare you the most, you know, the details of the trip. Just know it involved a lot of water, uh, some stinky dudes, overblown stories of manhood and lots of canned meat and chili. He says, so it's a few hours before dawn. And it had been 16 days since we set out from Los Angeles in our little boat knowing very little about navigation. And suddenly the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny boat. Somehow the way he said it, it sounded like we were the size of an aircraft carrier. And then he started announcing the names of our ragtag crew like he was introducing heads of state. One by one, he announced all of our names with obvious pride in his voice. And it became a really emotional moment for each of us on board. I guess so after 16 days at sea in a little 35-foot boat. When he came to my name, he didn't talk about how few navigation skills I had or the zigzag course I'd led us on to get there. He didn't tell everyone that I didn't even know which way north was or about all my other mess-ups. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. And when he was done, there was a pause. And then in a sincere voice, his last words to the entire crew were these. Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Welcome home. And because of the way he said it, we all welled up and fought back tears. I wiped my eyes as I reflected on that moment about all the uncertainty that had come with us and that journey, all the sloppy sailing and how little I really knew. But none of that mattered now because we had completed the race. I've always kind of thought that heaven might be kind of a similar experience. I bet it's people traveling in the direction of Jesus, trying to follow him. People like me who made lots of mistakes and lots of mid-course corrections. But after we each cross the finish line in our lives, friends, I imagine it like floating into the Hawaiian marina when our names were announced one by one. And at the end, perhaps simple words spoken by a loving and proud God will be this. Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Welcome home. So you might say, well, okay, that's a nice story. What do I do with that? Well, God's ready to welcome you home. And so your action step is simply this. I want you to live today as a gift from God. Take the adventure. Get on the boat. Get some good people with you and go have an adventure with God. Turn your life towards him so that when you get to the end of the trip, when you sail into that marina, you'll have no fear of giving an account for how you've used the gift that next year of your life. You'll celebrate it. You'll feel great about it. 
you'll love that God has given you a second chance tonight. Amen?